0: All right, welcome to Runner's Digest, show number five here, Monday, April 20th, Boston, Massachusetts. We're live from the Tracksmith Athletics Club. I'm Patrick Tomashevitz here with Robert Johnson, Jonathan Galt, and Sean Hartnett, the marathon professor from Track and Field News. So we've got a room full of people here listening and live on letsrun.com. So Robert, what did you think of the race today?
1: I thought it was great. It was, uh, this is one of the reasons why I love Boston. I mean, there's no rabbits. And you know, when you watch the Chicago or London, the Americans fall off the scene pretty quickly. And you're sort of looking in the back of your screen, like where can I find someone from America? But but in Boston without the rabbits, you know, they're up there and when's the last time, maybe Sean would know he's an expert in the marathon. When's the last time an American man and an American women were in the lead in Boston at mile 21? Do you yeah. have any idea, Sean?
2: That's a long time. Well, Ryan <laughs> Hall, but not that wasn't women
1: either. Yeah. So, so uh, on, but, but I, I think that's open for debate. When I walked into the Tracksmith Club, uh, grabbed my beer, and guy first guy that walked up to me said, "Disappointing day for the Americans." I was like, "What are you talking about?" Um, our second point in the article that's about to go up and let's run. I said it was a great day to be an American fan to have the lead. It was, you know, but it's true. If you just if you didn't watch the race on TV and you just see the results, and you know, Desi Linden was fourth. But uh, Shillane was only ninth, and then uh, I think Mab and and Rich were 7th and 8th. You know, if you just saw the results, you'd think, yeah, disappointing. But I think the excitement of being in the lead that late in the race was great for me. I think the lack
0: of rabbits here in Boston leads to that excitement. Often you watch a rabbited race, Chicago, London, New York or not so much New York recently, but you, you watch an hour and a half of rabbits and you watch everybody sitting behind the rabbits, sitting behind the rabbits, and the beautiful thing about the race today is there was a lot of lead changes. There was a lot of people falling off the back, coming back. Ritz, how many times did Ritz leave the pack, come back, and then he ended up leading the race for for a very good portion. Same thing with Desi Davila. De there was often times where she was in the back of the pack, she was on the other side of the road, you couldn't tell whether she was just getting water or she was she was falling off, and um, she did a wonderful job. She led a lot of the race, and I think the the lack of the lack of rabbits really really changes that here. Jonathan, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think one of the interesting things uh, in unrabbited races is. You, know, you have to be thinking at all times about, you know, what you're gonna be doing, how you're gonna to respond to moves. In an in a rabbited race, you just sort of turn your brain off. You follow the pace, you go with that, and uh, you know, basically it's not really you don't have any interesting things happening until the final miles because you're just sticking with the rabbits for as long as you can. In a race like this, you know, I was speaking to Ritz in the post-race press conference. He was basically saying he had to make several different decisions at several different points in the race. You know, 10K, do I go with these guys because they went out faster and I thought they were going to go out. You know, how do I approach the hills? You know, do I push it now or do I relax a little bit? How do I approach the, the end course uh, after the hills? Do I try and, you know, go for it or do I hold off a little bit? knowing that he struggled with that area in the past. So, you know, if we, if that's a rabbit race, he's sort of just like, okay, I'm either going to be going with the rabbit, or I'm going to be trying to hang on and, you know, do my own thing. And this one, he can stay with the pack for a lot longer, and it's also a lot of different decisions. It makes it much more interesting as a fan to watch because people have to make a lot more choices.
1: Sean, I got a question. I mean, you go to all the, all the world marathon majors, Have you ever talked to a London, maybe a Dave Bedford? Has has a race like that even ever thought about not having a rabbit? I always think, spice it up. Maybe every other year or every four years, just don't do it. Or you know, we're going to have the spring rabbited race and the spring unrabbited race. Do they ever consider something like that? Because to me, it it gets a little boring to have a rabbit time after time. It would be fun even to have a rabbit in Boston once every ten years or something like that.
2: Well, there's. I guess we could probably answer that question in one word: Berlin berlin makes everybody have rabbits you know london has got a great field but because they're shooting for what what they do in times at berlin that's why they they precipitate the rabbits and and actually london is a very difficult race to rabbit because it's got a very steep downhill at about 5k and so their pacers have been almost counterproductive there but uh overall london chicago are chasing berlin and that's that's why they have the rabbits you know New York and, and Boston are difficult courses you know they, they they kinda recognize the fact that they're aren't gonna set records on the courses so they they set it up as a as a horse race or a foot race in this case here and uh, so they, they shy off of rabbits but uh, a lot of the other uh, Berlin makes makes a lot of people change their strategies because uh, for a lot of marathons time time does matter as you pointed out, Robert, this was this was a race where place mattered rather than, than time.
0: I, th- I think you see often here the athletes that run well at Boston run well in championship-style racing, World Championship Marathon, um, Olympic Marathon races, because this is this is that format.
2: Mm-hmm. The the other complicating thing was was the headwind. You know, the, the net effect is that well, maybe a few years back when you had a tailwind, you know, all races measure out twenty six miles and you know or forty two kilometers. But if you have a, a tailwind, it's probably more like a 24-mile effort. If you've got a headwind like today, it's probably closer to a, a 28 or 30-mile race, you know, in terms of that effort. And you have to kind of gauge that effort. And that's why I think there was a lot of, shall we say, cautious running by a lot of, by a lot of the athletes. And the, the wind really came and went. There were some stretches... When it was a moderate wind i think in most cases it was probably 10 to 15 most cases straight up straight up the course some of the wider courses parts of the course it probably was up to 20 25 you know around 10k there was a really bad stretch there and then other cases when you have some of the hills or some of the pine trees like when you're coming into wellesley in that case, there was almost no wind on the course, and so that you, you the athletes had to adjust to constantly kind of changing conditions, most of them were bad you know conditions and uh, so that, that makes them a little more hesitant because if you're thinking about, shall we say a tactical move, you have to factor in the resistance you're running into.
1: Yeah, I was glad I ran into you, ran into you on the lobby on the way over here because uh, you were on the lead truck. I mean, on TV they were trying to tell us it wasn't windy at times. I mean, for most of the race, and I was like, I was outside before I came into the you know the media room. I know it's windy, and then when we talked to the runners after the race, they all said it was definitely uh, you know pretty windy. One of the things you were you were talking to me is you said you spoke with Ritz and you know, you try to encourage him, you know, seventh probably isn't what he was hoping for. He probably was hoping for maybe top five, but he's really struggled at the end of some of these marathons. So to do well, and yes, you know technically, as you said, it's 26.2 miles. This is probably a 27-mile marathon equivalent. Um, did he seem upbeat to you when you sort of gave him that little pep talk? Yeah, well, he was
2: he was confident that uh, the thing he took away from it that he that he felt very strong over his last two miles. And for Ritz, a lot of his races have really struggled. And, and you know, a race you can lose two minutes, you know, in the in the last couple miles. So even though he managed to back off, and he did a, did a very good job, you know, he backed off earlier, and then the leaders started running 5.15s, you know, so he was able to come back. He backed off at the, the start of the hill at the firehouse tone, and that one he had to work to come back. But, uh, you know, I, I think what Ritz does is a good job of knowing where he's at. You know, he knows he's a, a 207, you know, probably on a good day he's a 206 marathoner. But there's a, a gap when when the 204 marathoners start running 204 types of marathons he's learned to, you know back off the fire you know talk to himself and then come back so i think given the way he finished he's he's got to be confident uh, looking forward and it, you know especially because this this was kind of a comeback marathon for him a, a real comeback you know change of locations you know coming back and after some disappointment so even though you don't really see him you know the the move up of the charts you know because he was off the leaders, finishing strong over the last two miles was a good takeaway
3: for Ritz absolutely, yeah, if I'm dathan ritzenheim i'm I'm going coming away from this race, pretty confident in my abilities, knowing that you know maybe he had a little bit more in the tank. He said when he got to the top of the you know hot break Hill. At that point, he wanted to relax the pace a little bit. He wasn't sure if he was going to be able to handle those last five, six miles because that's where he struggled in previous marathons. This time, that didn't happen. He uh, you know, he relaxed, and the last couple of miles, he, as you said, he closed very strongly. So you know, maybe if he had uh, taken a risk at the top of Heartbreak Hill, he would have uh, finished maybe a place or two higher. He would have run a little bit faster, but... He, he knew that in this race, he didn't need to do that. This isn't the race where he needs to be taking this kind of risk. This is the race for him to be getting back to the level that he was a couple of years ago. And I think, you know, maybe, say he makes the Olympic team, maybe the Olympic marathon, where, you know, there's really such an emphasis on top three, and then after that, it's not as important. You know, you know what I'm saying. The medals are what everyone's shooting for. Maybe that's the race where he decides to take a risk over the final uh, couple of miles.
4: Okay.
3: So welcome, uh, Robert's bringing a guest on. I'll let Robert
1: introduce his In, special guest. Indeed, we're honored to have uh, Nick Arsianaga. Uh Nick was 14th today, 21802. Uh, perhaps not quite the day you're looking for. You got that 2. Twitcher PR nowadays?
4: 211. Uh, I was gonna,
1: uh, times 2-11. Yeah, so I was hoping I was about to say 210, but uh, you know, Nick, you went out with with the with the leader, 64 minutes at the half, and, you know, we kept looking up there. That's the fun thing about Boston, we're like. There's Mav, there's Ritz. There's Teague, like, there's Nick. Like, What's Nick doing up there? Nick kept staying up there. We're like, wow, he's really he's really going for it. So was that the plan all along or was it because of the weather you thought, I better be up here having somebody block the wind for me? No,
4: that's exactly it. I wanted to be with the leaders. Like, I go into these races in Boston and New York hoping for bad weather because it will slowly pack down. Today, it didn't really slow them down too much. Uh, so going out there and having to be with the leaders was a bit aggressive for myself. I came through 15K at 45, 15, which is, about 20 seconds off my 15k of PR at this time, so um, at, at that point is where it kind of flew up. But um, analyzing the race afterwards, like I was stuck between a rock and a hard place in this race. Like it, Either I go with the uh, leaders and risk blowing up, which is great risk of blowing up, and then um, the other option was to play conservative, which is not the point for me this race. This race is one to take risks and try to go for a top five
1: finish. Yeah, we talked to Fernando Cabado after the race and, you know, he said he was in the shape of his life and he was over 225, I think. And we said, what happened? He said, well, they went out in 4.39. I thought that was too fast. And then I went out in 4.59 and I just mentally couldn't handle running by myself the whole race, so. I guess you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe if uh, Americans kind of packed together, like uh, around where Jeff Anderson was, he came through half marathon at like 65, I'm pretty sure. And if Fernando and I were there, maybe even taking camp, we call it, probably could have run a pretty even split or maybe caused a split by a few minutes and finished, you know, maybe in the top 10. But, again, just uh, shooting for a top 10 is not what I was shooting for this weekend.
3: Yeah, I mean, going off of that, did you, uh, did you talk to any of the other Americans what they might be trying to do Uh, you know, in the race, that strategy, anything like, you know, maybe if it gets in a certain situation, we might help each other and push each other? Uh, We didn't discuss it uh, in depth beforehand. I mean, we all assumed that it was not going to go out
4: fast, so we thought it was going to be a 2.10 to win the race and maybe just, like, negatively to hit that, so I was imagining it was going to be 65 or 66 to do the first half marathon and that all the uh, lead group, there would be,
3: like, 30 guys with us at that point, but... Was not, not that way today. How difficult is it mentally just to stay focused over that second half when you know that you're slowing down? You might not be doing what you you wanted before the race, but you know you still got to get out there and finish. Tough it yeah, out. Yeah,
4: for me it was terrible today. Just like, I kept looking at my watch, which was a bad mistake. I was hitting uh, 5:40s, almost six minute pace, uh, going through the later half of that course. Um, it, uh, just mentally, just keeping myself on it. I know I didn't want to drop out because I've dropped out of this race before, and it was one of the biggest regrets I've had so far. Uh, so I just want to stick it out and kind of see how I ended up just uh, battling all the way through. Yeah
1: So after months of training you run 218, your PR is 211. Are you upset? Devastated? What's the mindset right now? Um, or I'm trying to be
4: positive. Actually, like um, I finished 14th place, so I ran half as good as I did last year. And basically, I came into this race with 211 and ended up 218. But I stuck my nose in it. I mean, I'm proud of the way that I kind of was racing with the leaders and going out really aggressive. And even though I did blow up, I was feeling amazing for those first nine miles. You know, just kind of feeling the groove. And was that little separation that happened just between nine and ten between myself and the leaders? I just lost all my energy. Like I'm not sure if it was more mental, just kind of getting gapped, But like maybe if I had been able to find another gear and just stick with it for a mile or two. could have been uh, like right with uh, Ritz and the group uh, as they slowed down going towards the Newton Hills.
3: Weldon was wondering uh, in our chat, um, there was a guy, I think his name is Derek Yorick. He went through uh, the first 5K pretty quickly. He was like 162, wasn't didn't have an elite bib. Uh, but he might have kind of screwed it up. I, I don't know if uh, one of the elites was planning on taking it out quickly or if that was... A result of what that guy was doing but what do you think about guys like that who sort of you know you know they're not going to be there in the end but they go to the lead and try and you know get the, on tv the first mile or two i do remember actually thinking that
4: in the first mile this guy's ruining up the race for us americans but um no it, it wasn't his fault like uh there was uh tola was going to be pushing the pace anyway like yeah. he was out there like every other mile pushing down another 440 something so like everybody was responding so the rest of us had to
1: respond so, where do we go from here? We got the trials, obviously, next, what is it, February?
4: Nope, nope, February.
1: Will we do a fall marathon or are we gonna just, uh, I mean, it's kind of a long time to, 10 yeah. month base if you don't do a fall marathon, but on the other hand, if you do a fall marathon, then you kind of, have a shorter build-up than normal.
4: Well, if you know me, I did three marathons last year. This is my fourth marathon in 365 days, so it's basically, I like racing, so I'm actually looking into a few different options. Uh, Worlds is probably out of the question at this point. Um, there might be the option to do Pan-, Pan American Games in July, uh, which we'll still have like a follow open
1: to some option for a marathon. Good, Can we get you at the uh, um, as a Baltimore resident? We, you were on the Baltimore half last year? Can we? Your Under Armour sponsor? We we'll be coming back to the hilly as hell Baltimore half.
4: Yes, I would definitely be coming down right. to Baltimore half again. I'd like to uh, run faster than I did last year there.
1: Very good. Well, thanks for being with us, Nick. Uh, we've got uh, free beer here at Tracksmith. Uh, we wanted to get Nick on the show pretty much right away because. You run 26.2 miles and then you have an eight percent alcohol i'm not sure how many beers it'll take but it probably won't be
4: no just being in front of all these lights and all these people kind of getting dizzy
1: from that (laughs) (laughs) well thanks for being with us and uh good luck next year particularly in the trials thank you appreciate that
4: um
1: you know it was great to have nick on on and we want to thank employee 1.1 steve soprano used to train with nick or t- try to train with nick i guess maybe it would be a better way to say it out in flagstaff um you know what we were talking about and I th- i'm not sure uh, we're not we're not looking at the website right now but we're going to put up our 10 takeaways or maybe it's nine takeaways from boston um and john and i were working on this and sort of number one really was it was sort of a you know a tale of two cities or a tale of two races on on the women's side um it was a huge upset i mean carolyn rochich has never been higher than fourth at a world marathon major um, I think John, I, I should, actually, I'll, I'll praise John before I denigrate John. Probably about a half mile from the, from the uh, finish, John was sitting in the row behind me in the press box, and I, and I put my hand out, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, congratulations. He said, what? I said, you predicted the men's and women's winners correctly because Ethiopia's Elisa De Sisa, the favorite, was on his way to victory, and it looked like Murray Dababi, our, our favorite, was going to win the women's race. But she got out-kicked in the hundred in the last hundred by uh, Carolyn Rotich, so I, I think I jinxed you, John. Apologize for that, but um, John. And then John like looked it up. He's like, "Wow, I, I gave her 20 words in the preview." So, John, how surprised were you by by Carolyn's win?
3: I was extremely surprised. I mean, I, I guess maybe I shouldn't have because if there's one thing about the marathon, it's that you don't always. and It's something I learned this weekend: is you don't always know who's in shape, who's in good form coming in. You know, if you look at the Dubai Marathon a few weeks ago, a few months ago, when I wrote that preview, a guy by the name of Haile Lemmy, who basically no one in the world had heard of, uh, came out of nowhere and he won that race. So in the marathon, sometimes you'll have guys winning it randomly, but uh, yeah, Rotich, I, d- I definitely didn't see that coming. I gotta say, part of me was kind of rooting for Debaba to win just so that I would get my predictions right. I felt pretty confident about Desisa, so uh, you know, Debaba didn't quite have it in the end, but. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a surprise, and like I said, I mean, you had a number of candidates who I thought were, could win the race, and coming into today, I did not think Caroline Roteach was one of them, and uh, that's why I didn't give her a lot of space in the preview. She was only fourth in Tokyo last year, fourth in Yokohama. Uh, those She has won the NYC half twice, but I think a big thing that I'd look at when evaluating marathoners, is what have they done in the last two marathons? And neither of her last two marathons were very impressive. So, you know, to say that I thought that Caroline Rotich, who's coached by a former triathlete, uh, Ryan Bolton, was gonna win the 2015 Boston Marathon, I didn't see that coming at all.
1: Indeed. Um, Sean, I mean, you were in the men's elite truck, but so you didn't even know what's going on in the women's race, or when, do you find, when did you find out Rotich won and how surprised were you by that?
2: Well, usually we get uh, pretty detailed updates, but there was, there was less of that this year. And we kind of heard, you know, lead pack of, you know, 10, and then actually down to three. Uh, so so was fed in Though A couple things about Carolyn that uh, might set off our mindset. Uh, a Kenyan that trains in America. She prepared in Flagstaff. Um, this, this might be a, a growing trend, uh, particularly because there's a lot of issues in training in Kenyan now. And so training in America, a white thing, and her coach is a triathlete coach rather than a running coach. I can't remember. I don't know if I know any other coach that's a triathlete. I know a lot of marathon coaches that coach triathletes, but vice versa, I, I, I don't know about yeah. that. So that's a couple new trends out there, but uh, she was ready to, to run and obviously ready to finish. Uh, from what I heard quite a stirring run down the the finishing stretch
3: she said i mean she said that a few people have questioned her they, they asked why are you with this triathlete coach you know and uh she she said she doesn't try and think about that she's had success under him uh she obviously felt she was in good shape and she showed it today so yeah i, I think i'm going to side with her if it ain't broke don't fix it and uh you know she, clearly her training is not broken right now
2: you know one, one other thing that we can't underestimate is that you know the time zone difference you know training in america means that you have less time zones to cross you know come race day and most of the athletes do it in you know three four days you know before the race and that it's very hard to adjust you know for nine time zones or actually eight to kenya from here and so training in america uh sometimes is an advantage uh you sometimes had used to have uh kenyan groups tom radcliffe had a at a Kenyan group they used to train in Boulder and one of the advantages that it made for easy adjustments in time zones.
0: Travel is a difficult thing. If you're just joining us, this is Runner's Digest presented by Let's Run.com. We're live at the Tracksmith Athletics Club serving Lagunitas beer here for free on 285 Newberry Street. The room is a bustling. I'm Patrick Tomashevitz from Tracksmith here with Robert Johnson, Jonathan Galt, and Sean Hartnett, the professor of the marathon from Track and Field News. Robert, what's on your uh, your ten li- top ten list of things you saw today that are about to go up on the site?
1: Uh... I think the most, the biggest revelation I had post-race, um, the way it works for those of you that don't get to sit in the media room, which means sit in the base, well, it's a ballroom and, and watch the, well, there's about four TVs, it is pretty nice, but um, after the race is over, they have the, normally the top three finishers come in, and we sit Jonathan there to, you know, to get the winners and stuff like that, but everybody's going to go talk to them. We always try to talk to the people who aren't in the top five you know, the Matt Teigen camps, Nick Arcianagas, the Americans, basically. Um, and, and I tracked down Matt Teigen camp, and, you know, he was, um, you know, he just missed the top 10. He was 11th place, 213.52, two his second marathon. So to me, that's a pretty credible performance. I mean, it put, certainly puts him in the mix for the Olympics. So I said, Matt, you know, big scheme of things, you know, do you like the marathon? Are you pretty happy with this? You know, are gonna be able to get ready for the trials? And he, he took a long pause and was like, all right, all right. Um, do I like the marathon? I think it takes a special person to really, and then he just was honest and says, no, I don't like the marathon. So this is a guy that's 11th in the Boston Marathon, who still may be on the Olympic team, but he's admitting, hey, I don't like it. Um, But he says what he does like, he actually loves the sport. And he's a competitor, he was one of the world's best, you know, fourth in the world in the 5,000. And that success isn't gonna be there for him on the track. He realized his best chance in the Olympic team is the marathon, so that's what he's gotta do. He's in a great group, he's like, if you're in a great group and you have a plan and you have have teammates, he's like, you can have a, a wide, Range of distances that you can excel in, but it's rare to get you know an honest interview from somebody, and we're going to put that up on Let's Run where they actually say something of sort of consequence in, in a post race interview,
0: especially someone who is doubted as even as a potential 10k runner at one time. <laughs>
3: it's pretty impressive that he, in his debut, finished just outside the top 10 here in Boston. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's just difficult if you look at Matt Taggingham, his best distance in his career was clearly 5,000. He was, uh you know very close to a medal in 2007 he got fourth at worlds and he's you know he's the American record holder outdoors at two miles he's around 807 and uh, you know I think we've been a little bit spoiled by Bernard Lagarde who can still kick at age forty but most people as they uh, as they age slow down they can't close quite what it takes to uh, Get a medal or contend for a medal at a global championship, and uh, you know to stay relevant in the sport, you kind of have to move up in distance. And Matt camp appears to know to know that, but uh, yeah, it's it's just something that it's part of the life cycle of a professional runner. You can't be a five thousand guy contending for medals anyway.
4: up through age forty
3: unless you're you know, a genetic freak like Bernard Lagarde. What happened to Amy Craig today? I
0: I watched the television broadcast here. I wasn't in the media room, so I didn't have the ability to see all the cameras. Early in the race, she she was up there. Um, Did anybody catch up with her after the race?
1: Yeah, I did. Well, actually, I caught up with her coach, Ray Tracy, from Providence, who's one of the top women's coaches in the world. We're going to give credit to one of our message board, uh, I mean, to one of our Let's Run listeners for asking this question in a little bit of a crude way. If you do have a question, there's a chat box in Let's Run that you can type in there. But you know. Amy was a, Amy Hastings. Now Craig, you know she's a 2:27 marathoner, and she was up in the lead pack at one point, approaching. The, I think at the start of the Newton Hills you know, the Africans started to make their move and it was she was the only American. It wasn't Desi Linden who was in the lead as late as 21. It wasn't Shalane, that's when Shalane really started to struggle. Amy was the only one that went with it. She looked so good. And I mean, we were commenting several times, Jonathan. Wow, look at Amy, what is she doing up there? Because she was running, you know, a 227 girl doesn't normally run with 221, 222 girls. So I saw Ray and I said, well, where did Amy end up? He said she ended up dropping out at 22 miles. And he said, literally, she went from feeling great in the lead pack, and she turned. I don't know, Sean. He said she tur- just after she turned at the firehouse. He said that was it. Her legs just instantly seized up. Um, and you've got more experience than me, but he basically, you know, he's an Irish guy, probably straight, pretty straight shooter. He's like, you're either made for the Boston Marathon course or you're not. And he's like, he seemed to imply that she'd be much better on a flat loop course. But he said he was encouraged by the fact that her training is significantly better in workouts than the two twenty seven fifty that she ran in Chicago. And she said she felt like it was a joke aerobically, you know, up until that point, but just the legs, muscles, or whatever yeah. gave up.
2: Well, well, the Boston, I guess we could call it a a full body marathon course. I mean, you, you use your full range of strides, all sorts of strides, the uphills, the downhill strides, the covering the moves strides. If you're on a flat course, you know, you're almost like a, shall we say, a ballerina with very, you know, you know, specific types range of motion, and it, it is uncomfortable for that. Some people, you know, well, well you know, for racing, one of the, even if you're on a track, one of the way to drop people is to change the pace up, and Boston does it to you on a normal day. Throw in the the changing conditions, the changing wind conditions. Trying to find a rhythm today was, was uh, very difficult. And, you know, to tell the truth, I must commend all the runners on it because, you know, y- you don't train for this type of day. I mean, you, you have to accept it. Maybe in the back of the mind, you do more strength work to prepare for, you know, like a, a 50 kilometer effort or 48 kilometer or 28 mile effort. But in the front of your mind, you're thinking, I'm going to be in the groove and I'm going to be jamming, you know, the whole way. And then you get out of that mix, you know. It, it it it's sometimes how to find find your footing in there.
3: So absolutely. And I one thing I would have liked to speak to Amy after the race because I think it's just difficult as an athlete. How do you assess this performance? You know, I think aerobically she was very happy with it. Her training went well, as Robert said. But at the end of the day, she's got a DNF next to her name, and that's that's you know that can be pretty ugly. And if you go back before Chicago, she'd had another DNF and then another poor marathon in New York. You know, it's, it's a little dispiriting, but uh, I, I think, you know, she needs to take the positives out of this. She did have a good build-up, and I think, you know, I, I still consider her a main, major contender for the Olympic team in 2016. Yeah. And I mean, let's transition to that
1: topic. Well, real quick, I, I agree with you. I think the only way to, to take it is like with Nick Arsienaga. You've got to take the positives. It's such a brutal sport. You're only competing twice a year. I was really impressed by Amy. She looked—when go- have we seen her run in the lead pack and look comfortable? I mean, you look at her face; she looked fantastic. Um, and before we talk about the Olympic team, just two quick things about Ray Tracy because uh, you know he, he is one of the top women's coaches in the world. I said his other athlete, Molly Huddle, set the American record, fourteen fifty on the roads. I mean, it was almost Patrick a world record. I think it's fourteen forty six. And I said, "Were you surprised by that?" And he's like, "Not at all." He said that Molly is way ahead of where she was last year. And they weren't trying to be way ahead, just same type of stuff. She's just been healthy and and is doing great. Um, So I I asked him, I said, well, are you guys ever going to do a marathon? He's like, well, the New York City people really want her to do it. I don't want her to do it until after the Olympics. But the thing that really got me excited, if we're going to talk about Americans and Olympics, is... He really thinks that Molly has a shot in the 10,000, both this year and next year. And I think he's got a point. He's like, fitness-wise, you know, we may not get the race, but he's like, that thirty twenty-two American record for Shalane Flanagan is not out of the question. And that seems reasonable. I mean, based on what she's done, Sean, do you think thirty twenty-two is doable on a perfect day?
4: Sure.
2: Yeah, that's and, and if we look at our American records, our good races, you know, there are night races. You know, even at Tech uh, U.S. Nationals, we've had some some very fast times in in situations. We get it a good setting, a night race. So I think that's that's very doable. Um, you know, and the thing about Molly, she's on an uptick. You know, every race seems to ratchet it up a, l- a little bit more. You know what. Hopefully this year she's going to get more, shall we say, international type of experience. You know, with the World Championships, some some racing in Europe to get uh, to get to those levels. Obviously, she's mastered she's mastered the U.S. competition.
1: Yeah, and uh, one other thing.
2: I was going to say just just back to Amy. You know, the other thing impressed about Amy. You know, she ran a great PR in Chicago, ran a great race there. But her PR is still four or five minutes behind the ladies that she was racing with today. So that's that's commendable. Even though the finish was a little bit off, you know, you know, go back to Nick. You know, Boston's a real roll of the dice, you know, because of the, the complications of the terrain and the course. A lot of courses, you know, let's say if you're trying to run American, trying to run five-minute pace. And if you try that in Chicago, we, we have this a lot of times. And if they blow up, they run 213 instead of 211. In Boston, if you blow up, you add five, six, six minutes to it. You know that, That's why it's a real roll of dice. And I don't think a lot of times the, the finish time is indicative of what, what the takeaway is for, for that race.
1: Yeah, so, Sean, you're famous for sort of doing the, the geographical maps for all the marathons. And sort of, Ray, you know, the, the normal LA marathon course is downhill big time at the start. Um, have you seen or has it been finished for the Olympic trials? Are we going to get a flat loop course? That's, hoping, that's what Ray is hoping for Amy because he, he clearly didn't seem to think that she is great at hilly races. He was very honest. He also doesn't think Kim Smith, you know, Kim Smith is more of a half marathoner than a marathoner. And U.S. fans, if you're looking for the new next U.S. star at the marathon, he was really, he said, Emily Sisson, who just set a collegiate record this year indoors, only a senior province, he's like, she's made for the marathon. So to have someone like Ray say that, that is someone to be excited about, you know, four or five years down the road. But do we know what the, if we're going to start talking about the trials, do we know what the course is going to be like? Is it just going to be on the coast and flat or?
2: Well, it's going to be as a loop course, a criterium type of course. I, I talked to some of the USATF people at the Houston Marathon i don't think it's been fine well it wasn't finalized at the time so they they don't have the profile but it uh uh, like they did in london they want to try to simulate the course at the olympics and in in uh, brazil it will also be a be a loop course and so it sounds like it will be a, a fast relatively flat loop course the other thing is that um, it usually expedites the recovery a little bit better, even though you run faster, a little bit on the legs. But, uh, so I think it should be very similar to what they expect in the Olympics.
0: So, so on to the trials conversation. I think there's a few athletes today that brought themselves back into the conversation. I think uh, you know a handful of months ago, I don't know if Dayton Ritzenheim's name would have been mentioned in terms of, of potentially making the 2016 T- 16 team, but but I think I was most impressed by Dathan's performance today. I I thought he you know he fell off the pack multiple times, he came back to the pack multiple times, and for a long period of the race he was setting the pace in a very controlled way, um, and the the confidence that he showed there, you know despite the the finish result, I think the effort and um, on his end was very impressive today.
1: That's a good point. I mean, when he moved to Michigan, you know, left the Nike Oregon project, I thought it's just the beginning of the end. Is he sort of packing it in being a father, he's got a year or two left. And I don't think it was. I mean, maybe there's a the family aspect, but it's possible there was some sort of rift perhaps in the in the group. I heard that they wanted him to wear Nike Oregon singlet, project singlet, he didn't want to wear that. They wanted to wear the USA Nike singlet. But yeah, right. To me, I mean, he's such a talent. This means he has not packed it in. He's not looking for money. He's still in the game, right? I mean, I, I definitely, if you're going to ask me the one American man that's going to be on the Olympics in 2016, I say Ritz after today has to be on it. I mean, he was, you know, um, seventh. Meb is obviously right behind him, but Meb's going to be 40 going on 41. So I think Ritz, although I was going to say he's a lot, but with his injury, he's like fragile glass. He's as much of a walk as we can have at this point mm-hmm. and then after that it gets really interesting I mean Matt based on his credentials if he's excited One more Olympic team. It's very hard to discount him um, And then there's definitely a drop-off. I and John and I and I have arguments about this Ryan Hall's talent. He's the greatest Probably American-born talent ever this we've ever seen in this country and I don't think he can be discounted. He, he, I think his problems are he goes out and tries. He's run 2-0. What did he run here a couple years ago with the wind? 2-0-4-58. He's run 204, and now he's got to try to run 203 to win a major. He can't do that. But if it's a slow pace, how are we going to discount him? I don't think he can be discounted. I know people. Jonathan thinks I'm crazy. If you ask me to pick two, I'm picking Ritz and Hall. My third might be Met, which so we're going to. Well,
3: you're they, picking. You, if you ask, you mean you're saying Ritz and Hall? If you're asking a top, your top two, that's your best chance is Ritz and Hall. Hall has a better chance than Met. Is that what you're saying?
1: I don't know if he has a better chance. Not now, but in a year. And Jonathan, please don't tell my wife I have a little man crush on Ryan Hall. I always have, you know that type of talent doesn't come along very often I'm,
3: I'm a different I'm a different person from you Robert and I'll uh, I'll remind our listeners that you're listening to Runners Runner's Digest podcast uh, Boston Marathon post race show Jonathan Galt with Let's Run Robert Johnson with Let's Run Sean Hartnett and uh, Patrick Tumasiewicz and I'm going to disagree with you, obviously. I think a year ago, if you had asked me who were the contenders for the U.S. Olympic team, with Ritz still being hot and with Ryan Hall only being two years removed from his last good marathon, I would have probably said uh, Ryan Hall and Meb you know, definitely Mav Obviously, he won Boston last year. But I would have said Hull had me inside track to a spot. But he's just so far. That you know, that Olympic trials in Houston just seems so long ago now. And the guy, undeniably, is talented. You know, I, does he have more pure marathon talent than Mav? He, he might. You know, the way he, he's running faster times. Uh, but I just don't see it. He needs to show me something that he's capable of making this team, and I just haven't seen anything from Ryan Hall recently. Right.
1: how about this? I will think we'll have two of the three, Ritz, Hall, and Meb, and then the third might be just a random person, but a random person being someone who's already run under 214, um, Ryan Vale. I, I, I always like to root for the underdog. Sean, who do you think? You know, it's a year out, well, less than a year out.
2: Well, I, I think Ryan Vale is is positioning himself well. You know, he ran in London last year. He's got a lot of uh, international type of experience. Uh, he I think he was running a little better last year than this year, but, uh, but I think I think he's, he'll be a factor. Um, you know Diego Diego Estrada you know what I, what I saw I, I watched that half marathon in Houston.
1: You know,
2: he works with Joe you know he, he's getting getting some very good guidance with, with, with Dr. Joe. So I think Diego would be in it. But, uh, you know, my takeaway was was much the similar. This was a a great race for coming back with Ritz. I mean, literally, you go from the most optimum training environment, go to altitude any time you want, and he goes back to Michigan. And actually, when he went back to Michigan, remember he got dinged up a little bit right after he went back to Michigan to put it together, put it together, you know, I'm sure he still gets some guidance there, but you know, when you make a separation like that, you know you become almost self-coach in those areas. And you know, on the other hand, I was very impressed with Meb. you know, I was prepared for a letdown, you know watching Meb. You know, it's hard to match last year. He had a tremendous appearance schedule this year, you know, very demanding. But for most of the race today, Meb looked just as good as he did last year. His A- stride mechanics, things you can see from the truck. You can just focus on their turnover. You know how their, you know how, how how their knees are firing. You know how their mechanics. And Meb was just spot on until he had the problem with the with the water at the 35k. So, you know, I don't think you can underestimate Meb and uh, his compatriot, Coach Bob. You know, they they know how to put it together. And uh, so, you know, Meb is one of the few. You know, Tregat is much the same. Harley's much the same that can push their career that far out. But with Meb, what is lost, I don't know if anybody's seen Meb at a, at a race or whatnot. He'll be cooling down and doing uh, exercises. The maintenance work that Meb does, you know, I've... I'm impressed, though I also know there's a pretty steep cliff when you hit 39
3: to 40. Well, I'm going to bank on Meb evading that cliff or holding it off until at least after the trials next year. I think him and Ritz are fairly close to locks. We've gotten a few uh, posters in the comments section asking about Diego Estrada, and I think that's a valid question. You know, Estrada he ran a, a very fast half marathon I believe it was 60-51 to win the uh, US half marathon championships earlier this year but I'm going to say no to Estrada I'm going to give him a slim shot to meet the Olympic team and that's because in talking to him and his coach Joe Hill at the uh, Carlsbad 5000 earlier this year they seem pretty focused on the track for now Hill uh, thinks that you know even despite that half marathon that he's not quite ready for the marathon yet and that he needs to maximize his trackability at this point in his career I think Estrada projects as a fantastic marathoner and if you throw him into that mix I think he's got a shot but I, I don't think he's going to be lining up uh, at the Olympic trials, he's adhering to what Coach Vigil's asking him to do and right now that is not the marathon.
0: Let's move on to the women, I, I almost think that the the women's side could be, could be more interesting
1: Well I think we gotta all agree. If Desi and Shalane show up, they're on the team. Absolutely, 100%. You know,
4: Desi's the race. The third was,
1: spot gets real interesting.
2: Desi's race was very much like Ritz's. You know, it was a re-establishment race. It was. You know, She comes back a- after injury and trying to re-establish. You know, your your, your footing on there. So I I think it uh, was a very strong step back for her. And you could almost connect the dots from, you know, two years or three years ago to now with the blip for the injury. And I, I think she's back on her on her, on her track. Yep. Yeah,
3: every marathon since that injury uh, in 2012, her coach said to us after the race, she's gotten better. And, you know, she was fourth in New York. Uh, I believe it was fourth again today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just really solid consistent marathoner and i said before the race i think she's been a little under the radar i hope that's not the case now she beat chelaine flanagan for the first time in her career which is quite incredible flanagan i believe was 11-0 against desi before today but desi beat her by several minutes so uh you know those her and flanagan flanagan her, went at her peak it's probably better than any american marathoner almost any American marathoner in history outside of, you know, Castor and Samuelson. So uh, I think those two, but beyond that, Robert, who are you leaning to for the third spot?
1: Well, um, this is, that's a good question. It's kind of like, <laughs> let me think about it. Um, I've there's got a... my former Dallas native from Rice, the former steeplechaser. I'm having a trouble, hard time with her name. So There's a bunch of girls in the sub-230 range that, that have a shot. Um, after talking to Ray Tracy, I don't think he would do it, but I would want to see him We, Let, Let's get out there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let's get out there. Instead of getting destroyed in the 10,000, let's go for the marathon. But, you know, most women don't, American women don't start that soon. Um, it'll definitely be uh, interesting. Sarah Hall is actually another name. I mean, yeah. she, she didn't want a good marathon, but people were ripping her for that. She's got such crazy range and she does well on the roads. Um, she bombed her marathon debut in L.A., but then she came back and was 20th at World Cross Country. I mean, what a story that would be. As a media guy, you kind of want good stories, Sean. What if Ryan Hall doesn't make it, or Sarah does, or if they both make it? Either way, it's a good story. So, you know, yeah. she's something that, someone that can't be dis- discounted. I, I, and I, guess Seco, of it. Tucci.
2: I guess the narrative of it would be, is Sarah coaching Ryan or Ryan coaching Sarah? So that would be the... Uh, the, the dual point of it. But there is a gap after those two gals. You know, if we look back at the Houston trials, one of the surprises there was uh, Serena Burley, Remember who, who who did a lot of the leading there. And so she popped up on there because you've got two runners that are somewhat separate. The, the good news for Shalane, uh, reportedly she was a little dinged up, you know, for, for today's race. Uh, I don't know if we
0: got a confirmation of that or...
3: Yeah, uh, apparently she said that in a post-race interview with uh, Universal Sports, I believe.
0: In her post-race interview, she did mention that she had a setback in January. Mm-hmm. It kept her off the roads for a little bit, of, and they made an adjustment in training. Um, and she did say that, in quote, you can't take for granted being on the starting line. I had a setback in January, so I didn't even know I was going to be here. I just couldn't tell. So, as much as she says, you know, I, I know the course better than anyone, as she does historically, you know, she admits that she did. She wasn't on the course as much this year, and um, she did put up for being someone who had a setback that recently and banged up. She put up a good performance, but injury has been an issue. Well, it- indeed,
1: I, I, I mean, I don't know what I want as a journalist because no one's going to really admit their weaknesses. But it's right. I mean, I love Shalene and Jerry, but it's like, what's wrong with being honest? Like, yeah, I had a setback in January. My training hasn't been perfect. I, I just sort of hate hearing about. It. I'm not saying she's making this up at all. I, I don't doubt. I think she definitely had the setback, but and maybe she doesn't want to admit to herself that she had a setback until the race. Um, but it was, you know, definitely disappointing. Honestly, if I was going to pick the third U.S. marathoner, I I know she was a DNF, and people think I'm crazy. But I was impressed by, you know, it's like you watched Med today, Sean. You said he looked good. Amy Craig looked good. Oh. I don't yep. think you're
3: crazy at all. I, I yep. had the same exact opinion. I think that you know, if you look at her her history, she was fourth in trials last time. She was the Olympic ten k. She was the uh, Olympic trials ten k champion that time. And, you know, by PR, by her past accomplishments, I think, you know, yeah, DNF's not good, uh, especially if she doesn't run another marathon before, uh, before the trials. But uh, I agree with what you're saying, Robert. Right now, if I'm picking the top three, I'm going Shalane, Desi, and I'm still going Amy Craig for that yeah. good
1: spot. And, you know, she trains with Ray Tracy now in that group, one of the top women's groups really in the world, particularly in the U.S. She's in a good spot. She's married now. She's got a great training. Hey, if she never needs to do a workout, I'm certain that Alistair Craig can handle it. What is he, a 1301, 1302 guy? So, yeah, I mean, today was disappointing, but we know we're not going to have a hilly course like that. Um, you know, looking to another question, one of the things I was thinking about, guys, is, who was the biggest disappointment today? I, I've got a, quite a few candidates, but uh, Jonathan, don't, don't be looking well, over my notepad here. I see I, it.
3: I saw your candidates, and I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm going to preface this by saying I don't think Tedesse was an, a disappointment, because I don't think many people really expected him to do that well. I know that I said in the preview, I, you know, I thought this could be his best chance at a marathon.
1: John, you're talking about Jonathan A. the world half marathon record holder.
3: Yeah, uh, but... You know, he—he's. this was his fifth career marathon, I believe, and zero of the five have gone well. So I wouldn't call him a disappointment. The guy I was thinking of, you know, as I was watching that race, was uh, Patrick McDowell, former world record holder. I spoke to him on Friday. He said he was in good shape. He wasn't in world record shape, but he thought he was ready for this. He said... His training had gone well. He thought that uh, he was prepared for the course. He had been studying it. The area around his house was similar to, you know, it was up and down as hilly. So he thought, you know, this is a marathon that's going to go well. He won Fukuoka. Uh, I was in. I thought uh, Patrick Macau was probably a good chance to finish in the top five. Instead, you know, he barely made it five kilometers before he's out of the race.
1: Yeah, that was awful. Now, Sean may have some insight onto that. I saw Sean. I said, Sean. You don't even make it 5K? Do you have to give your money back? Like, how, that, is, that seemed really bad to me.
2: Well, to, to be fair, Pat, Patrick's training went pretty good, but he, he dinged up uh, kind of a hip flexor. And uh, I, I talked to a, a physio that, that worked on him uh, on Thursday when he got in, and it was uh, a little tight. He was able to loosen it up but then he said that uh, the warm up out in Hopkins was 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 not good at all you know that he, he could not get loose maybe maybe the i mean it's 20 degrees difference change in the in the weather there and and he said you know even in the warm up it was uh, very he was looking i mean he couldn't get into a stride so from the physio's point of view I don't think he was surprised you know it's it's a big you know the, the athletes invest in these training and it's not the first time that somebody comes to the starting line more than dinged up like Shalane. So, it's, so Patrick, uh, it's unfortunate, uh, because his, his training had come back. He ran a good race in Fukuoka, but uh, the same with Abel Karui. You know, Abel Karui is one of our champion runners, you know, uh, the world champion in the world championships. He had a, a pretty significant foot injury. I know I talked to Renato about it, Canova, about it, and he, he's worked with Alba, Abel all through his career and he was very concerned about the foot injury very very serious injury that is that is healed he had a little bit of hamstring problem coming in but for the early part of the race abel karui was looking spot on the form that he did before abel's problem was he got sick on the flight so he had some kind of flu cold type of thing and, and was clogged up. So those are some of the difficulties you get, uh, you know. Often we think of making it to the starting line, you know, the three, four weeks previously. But a lot can happen in that that last week.
0: Correct. A lot can happen. We're here with Runner's Digest, show number five, Monday, April 20th. We're live from the Tracksmith Athletics Club, show here presented by Let's Run.
1: Yeah, I mean... I- it's always I guess hard to say who's the biggest disappointment because nobody likes to hear criticism I think that's one of the reasons why the pros don't like the let's run forum is they have to face criticism for once but uh, for me I, 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 Fernando Cabada he came in saying he was in the best shape of his life I, I got the time wrong earlier I think I said 225 it was 222.05 um, that was you know, disappointing as an American fan and then I mean, now that I see that Shalane was hurt, but I was really, I, pretty, I was standing right here behind this bar less than 24 hours ago, and I picked Shalane to get the win. And I was really surprised to see her drop off in the Newton Hills so early. And it also makes me, though, appreciate Desi. I mean, there was one of the message board posts in the live thread. It's like, Desi looks so intense. Someone's like, it looks like she wants to rip everybody's head off in this pack. She is such a competitor. I mean, early in the race, Amy and Shalane were right up there. Desi fell off. I mean, this is before halfway. But who's got the lead at mile 21? It's not Shalane. It's not. Amy's not even. Well, Amy was just about to drop out of the race. It's Desi. So, I mean, you know, I'm not sure if that was a big surprise to me. But I don't think anyone. Well, well, Carolyn Rochich, if you ask me for my biggest surprise, Carolyn Rochich has got to be the biggest surprise. Everybody. But uh, I don't think Desi gets enough credit sometimes
2: some of the disappointments are really in the the nature of the media events you know no athlete's going to come up you know Shlaine's not going to go to the media events and and say i'm I, I i'm dinged up a little bit you know ahead of time patrick Macao's not going to say i'm digging up you know abel Karui's not going to say i got a cold you know so a lot of our preconceptions are are based on shall we say the rosy tip of the iceberg, you know, and uh, and as we see, it's 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 a sport, you know, and if you're not ready to go, six kilometers will tell you. You're, I mean, you got a hip flexor, you're not ready to go, but it but it is a little, you know, Tedesi, it. Uh, uh, he might have been interesting to see if uh, how he answered Matt Takingcamp's question, whether or not he's he likes the marathon. That might have been the been the one because it's you know it's uh, you know Matt's not the first one. In fact, there's there's been some very good marathoners that really don't like the marathon.
0: I don't want yeah. to take us off course, but I like what you're saying there, Sean, about about the, the media here and, and people not knowing. And I think athletes in track and field like to have their um, their complaints about why this sport is not popular, but so much is done in secrecy in this sport. So much is, I'm gonna go to altitude, I'm gonna train at altitude, I'm not gonna talk to anybody, I'm gonna get banged up. And when you look at other sports, you know, ESPN will run the whole day with a hockey player or a basketball player who sat out of practice with a shoulder and they'll talk about it and its coverage and its things that are going on but a lot of these ath- athletes disappear from the media landscape they disappear from the scene for 6 months at a time they come down from altitude and they compete and then everybody's frustrated above why there's no following for the sport but when you only hear someone's name twice a year you can't you can't build a following
3: yeah i, th- I think that is a bit of a problem I and mean, uh you know, if you're a marathoner, a world-class marathoner, you're racing two, maybe three times a year tops. And apart from that, every other race in your schedule, you know, it, it's not mandatory and it's not a race where you're really looking to go all out and really blow it out. There are any half marathons where, you, you know, that people might hop into them. But if Wilson Kipsang runs 60-30 for a half marathon, people aren't going to be saying... Oh, it's a disastrous performance. They're going to say just wait till he see what he does in London. Wait till he see what he does in his next marathon. And so, you know, marathons—it's great. Their popularity has gone up in the last few years. There's obviously a lot of money in that aspect of the sport. The popularity of marathons is good for the sport. The issue is, though, if you're hinging, uh, you know, part of the sport on athletes who only race twice a year, what do you do with those athletes? How do you create storylines in an event like the marathon uh, for the for the summer, for the winter, when there aren't any high-level races of that distance
1: going on? It's a tough thing for the sport. I I do think it's one of the reasons why though, I mean, the Olympics are so popular because there's a lot of unknown about the Olympics and it's a buildup. I think it's one of the reasons why the marathon is popular because in track, they race all the time. So you kind of know like, you know, Jonathan, if the three of us raced here, Jonathan would beat Sean and me, unfortunately. Patrick might give him a run for his money, but we know he's getting third and fourth, you know? And if we do it every week, it's probably not gonna change. The marathon, sort of the unknown about it, does make it a little bit more interesting, but you're right, it's hard to build a following. The thing that drives me nuts about it is how their names change and if I was running professionally, they wouldn't call me Robert Clay Johnson. They would call me Robert Johnson. But sometimes, you know, for a Kenyan or an Ethiopian, it's like Robert Johnson in one race. The next race, he's Robert Clay. The next race, he's Clay Johnson. I mean, they, like, can we get, like, some sort of agreement? You have to pick two names, and we're going with that.
2: Well, one of the things we got to take in the marathon is we got to take the good with the bad. The good with the marathon is become the event. And so instead of training for 10K and modified to the marathon, everybody's training for the marathon. This is why we have a a great proliferation of top marathoners, guys that go to the marathon without a track career. And we've seen the specialization of the training. It used to be in the past everybody would run a half or a tune-up time. But now we're seeing that that, that, that that takes maybe two weeks out of training for the recovery time. And you have to adjust your volume. So the specialized marathon training has kind of eliminated those, shall we say, sneak peeks at fitness. The benefits is usually we get a better fitness at the end of it, but we don't get that uh, you know, little pulse check of, of, of where they are. So I think we have to take take the good results of the marathon along with a lot of question marks that pop up on race day.
3: Yeah, Sean, you said that uh, you know the marathon is the big event right now, and I think that means that there's more of an incentive to push the limits of the human body and maybe beyond what the human body is supposed to accomplish. And uh, Weldon is asking in our chat forum right now, how big a problem do you think doping is in Kenya, especially related to the marathon?
2: Um, looking at the sport, you have to have all three wise eyes open. You know, the Simpson Fish, in this case here, of uh, of, of looking at the sport, you know, because there's uh, there are issues. And tell you the truth, when you're close to the sport, you know, there's 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 a few things, that athletes in the past that, shall we say, didn't pass the smell test, you know, in in, in terms of it, uh, you know the. The big bust on the women's side, you know, I, I chart a lot of marathons and, and and pace them off. And one of the, one of the managers was asking me to look at, you know, look, see if there's a shall we say a doping signature on the on the pacing, you know. And to tell you the truth, you know, there really isn't in the in the men's. You know, Comento's times, why why, you know, why are, are 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 removed from like when Holly went under, you know, two o three fifty nine. Kemento race was very similar. I mean, he he was tapped out at 40k, you know, and, and so, I mean, he did have this massive reserve, and I remember talking to uh, Jeffrey Mutai, and he said literally the first time he saw Kemento run, you know, they were running on a road, and he ran by. He, he turned around and chased him down to invite him in his group because he has the stride you see back back then, you know. But on the women's side, when we graphed out, shall we say, Jeptu's times and Shubakova, there was a signature there that, I mean, the equivalent there of what they ran. I mean, Shubakova ran faster than, you know, Sammy. You know, Jeptu almost ran as fast as Meb here. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the women this year, the mile that Jeptu ran last year in 448, the women ran in 548. Er, Four fifty eight mm-hmm. this year. They were ten seconds slower. Cool. And they but, were moving.
2: But if if you look at the times that Jeptu and Sherbokova finished, that would be like men running, you know, four twenty-five and four twenty or four eighteen to finish a race. And <laughs> in in some cases, you know, we you know, in, in hindsight, you know, we probably maybe maybe that didn't pass the, the smell test. But it, there is an issue. You know, what when, when I first started going to Kenya you know 12 years ago 2000 2002 2003 there were security issues you know you know athletes had bodyguards uh, uh one famous boston marathon runner when i greeted him i couldn't help but notice he was you know packing a handgun in the in the, in the back of his belt you know paul got uh, had you know had a had, a, you know had a security guard you know sammy rangero had the case when he was carjacked okay so the, you know, the the people, the criminal element, you know, was, was, was with the Kenyans. And then beyond that were all the the, the people, the, you know, schemers, you know, trying to do financial schemers. Three years ago, that kind of changed, and you, you know, you had the people with needles and representing Doc Duggar. So now now the security at the training facilities, you know, the downside of Kenya is that they only have like really three tracks in in the 10 you know training area so everybody's concentrated right in the track so if 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 your business is getting you know athletes and providing them with with you know epo or dope and working with a doctor and you know these are businesses for people in kenya you know and but they all it's one-stop shopping all they got to do is go to you know one of these three tracks and but You know what I heard from the managers? Most of the stuff was like the third tier type of stuff. The 210 marathoners trying to be a 207 or 208. You know I, uh, you know I've had you know know, I remember talking to Gott, you know about this you know at his kitchen table late one night it uh, came up he had a new supplement shipment and he was reading the label and he said the color is different it's got the same things and he was suspicious of it because it you know he had one that was had a gold label this one came a blue label he was reading the ingredients on it and then he just set it aside and Trigat, you know, I asked him about it, and he said, well, you know, I've been an athlete, you know, for all my career, and even if I, you know, the, the Kenyans used to be influenced by the John Nujugi, you know, case when he we missed the drug case, and it was basically for his career. You know, and Paul said, you know, if I try this new one without it being substituted, or I miss a drug case, everything I've had is, you know, uh, disrespected, you know. And, and I'm sure Paul at that time was thinking of a career, too, as a, you know, IOC, so those standards, you know, really that was a case of top-level athletes defining their own standards, you know, really, I mean they're, they're working those operates, but it's a personal definition and I think that's, you know a lot of the top athletes, you know are, are in that case, but it's you know that's that's why you need the th- third eye to, to keep on it But
1: Yeah, it's interesting, I mean, I, I heard a couple of complaints today on the broadcast, obviously you didn't watch it one coach was complaining that Catherine Switzer was just going on and on and on about the Kenyan doping, and on the Larry Rawson broadcast, I heard about it. I mean, I think a lot of Americans want to think, oh, they're doping. I mean, yes, there's doping, but it's not like we don't have doping in our country. I mean, every time I used to come to Boston about 10 years ago, Regina Jacobs was being fed at the, you know, New York imbalance. It New- yeah, wasn't the yeah. Reebok meet back then. Um, so, it's definitely a problem, and it'll see how it plays out. and be interesting to see. Yeah,
2: and you can see Regina Jacobs is a, a perfect example. So, uh, an athlete that we held up on a high pedestal, an athlete that went to producing later, and, and as soon as she got caught, she switched careers. Yeah. You know, had no interest in track and field whatsoever. So, you see kind of the opposite of a Trigat in that case. Uh, a person who has a, a standard for, shall we say, personal attainment that has no context of the sport whatsoever.
1: Everybody knows about the elite finishers, but we've got a couple of celebrity finishers and, and pseudo-elites. Uh, Joan Benoit-Samuissen, this is according to Runners World, ran 254. Not bad for age 57. God, I hope I, I can't do that now at 41, so that's pretty impressive. Um, and then 1968 champion Amy Burfoot ran 4:18 at age 68. Not too bad, but uh, nothing gets by Jonathan Galt, super guru. Jonathan, how did Jenny Simpson's world number one in the 1500? How did her husband do today?
3: Uh, Jason Simpson, who uh, you know was the reason why Jenny changed her name from Jenny Maringer to Jenny Simpson. He's the co- the root Simpson. Uh, he was 38th overall at a very respectable 225. Uh, out of Boulder, Colorado. So, you know, Jason, uh, I don't know quite what his PRs are, but, but I'm sure that you can uh, train with Jenny at
1: quite a high level out there in Boulder. I think, though, Tracksmith deserves credit for having the top celebrity because one of the amateur runners that you feature, right, was the one that. How did y'all set that up? It was the the woman that came in the finish line with Map, correct? Patrick? So here here at Tracksmith,
0: we had a, a press conference on Thursday, and the, we featured the amateurs. We featured real people with real jobs who somehow find time outside of their 40, 50-hour-a-week jobs to train their asses off and run really fast, and so we had three men and three women. Um, one of those women, Hilary Dione, who runs for the, the BAA, um, she's a phenomenal runner. I think her PB is around 235, well, we're sitting here watching the coverage today. Today. Um, and the, the TV is featuring Meb come in and Meb's coming down the Boylston Street and he was doing a wonderful do- job of thanking the Boston crowd for all the support um, in years previous and this year and um, just as they're approaching the finish line, Meb comes up behind Hillary, grabs her hand and raises it above their heads as they cross the finish line um, and so that was pretty cool for her she's a, she's a Dartmouth alum Jonathan will like that and uh, you know she's just a, a real person living here in Boston she works 40 hours a week at a, at a tech startup. And she she bought a treadmill this summer because of the or this winter because of the Boston winter, to get all of her miles in in the snow.
1: Two thirty five zero eight PB. Now the, I'm a little bit worried though because I think Jonathan the prize money went fifteen deep now this year. So if she got fifteen, she will no longer be an amateur. So she will no longer be eligible for the Tracksmith Hall of Fame next year.
0: That's good. That's an interesting point. The way we define amateur, the way I would like to define amateur is. What pays the bills? What keeps the lights on? Robert is a professional columnist. Professional media pundit. That's what pays his bills, and he's an amateur runner on the side. Um, Very very impressive. (laughs) It was a very impressive uh, day today for a lot of the Americans. I think that was my biggest takeaway from the whole day was the competitiveness, competitiveness that the Americans showed. I don't think we've seen a race like this with as many Americans in the mix making making pace changes, leading the race. I think it's very exciting for the
1: future of American marathoning. Yep. Indeed, uh, and I'm glad you're upbeat because, you know, what's the alternative, to be down about it? I mean, I, I really thought, you can't just look at the results, you gotta watch this race, and that's why I love Boston. You need to watch it. For a lot of these marathons, I don't need to watch it, I can just see the results. I mean, sure, a few people will blow up in a rapid race, but it's just not very interesting, whereas this was interesting and a great day. Um, and a great week, really Patrick Thanks to see you guys at Tracksmith. Uh, thanks for joining us if you 're listening're you're in the Boston area, we still have free beer here, so we 've got a few
0: cases of beer left. come on over two eighty five newberry street
2: Robert my, my takeaway is uh, you know last year Meb had the big lead. he took that the famous firehouse turn, and I was wondering men 's the next time we might see an American that lead. Today, we had both Americans took the lead going around the firehouse turn. Now, it's, now it's not an 18-mile race, but that that was significant. One other thing that we didn't mention, uh, Wesley Correa, former Boston champion. You know, he's an MP. He's, he's busy with uh, government work on that. He was impressive today. Um, on the upside, he's also training with Wilson Kipsing now in that group. So he, he had been... Kind of, you know, doing some uh, intermittent training, you know, mixing between his government service, but he joined up with Wilson Kipsang, and when that break occurred uh, after 35k, and I was looking at that pack of ten, and saw Wesley cover that move. Uh, that was that was very impressive.
1: You know? Yeah, he ended up fifth in 2:10:49. Now, Sean, did you? We got London on Sunday, so marathon fans, maybe take a day or two off. Jonathan, you can have tomorrow off, but then you better be banging out that preview for London. Did you get any insight from Wesley about which of those guys that he trains with might be the best? I I tried to get Bernard Kipiego, who trains with L.A. Kipchoge, and those guys to tip me off. He wouldn't do it.
2: One of my good sources is one of the Dutch physios that works with a lot of the athletes. and uh, Actually, he's the one that told me about Wesley working with with Wilson, and he says Wilson is, uh, is ready to go. Wilson's had a a uh, little bit, you know. was well, nice of the physios. You get all these little little blips on it, you know. And uh, uh, he had a little blip three months out, but now the the rest of the training is going pretty good. Jeffrey Mutai, he said, is is, is close to a hundred percent. But but he said Wilson is very good, and also Eli Kipchoge he said Emmanuel Mutai. Had a little little bump in the road, but uh, he ran a like a 63 half marathon after that, and then then got it straightened out. But uh, looks to be another classic uh, London race. But uh, you know, it's it's hard not to uh, you know in the marathon we always you know you jump to the favorites, and then you kind of jump off to it because you kind of know. You know that the marathon is unpredictable, so you, you go with your your heart, you know, with the favorites, and your mind thinks it through. Maybe I should go, but it's going to be hard to move off of Wilson Kipsing as the the favorite. You know what he's done over the last two years. You know, winning in uh, you know, London, and then then in New York. You know, against against top fields and. And and he's another athlete that uh, self-coached, but has got the whole package together. His lifestyle, his commitment. He reminds me very much of Paul Tregat, not only in the stature of how he runs, but particularly his personality, you know, what what he's like. He's a very serious, uh, straightforward guy. So it's hard to back off of the defending champion in London
0: that will be a very exciting week next week uh, with the London Marathon. Here. But that said, Iliad Kipchoge is
2: ready to go, too. And he, he hasn't run yet in London. You know, Iliad's taken a more protracted, incremental improvement. Uh, you, know, he, you know, he ran, you know, Hamburg Marathon and a couple of these, you know, Rotterdam. But then stepped up to... Uh, uh, Chicago last year improved proved he could do in the majors. And again, Iliad is another 100% committed athlete, committed on every single front to the sport.
3: Yeah, before we go, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, it's been a great week here at Boston. It's really, this is probably the best week of the year to be a track and field fan, and maybe outside of the World Championships, maybe even include the World Championships because you've got Boston today, You got the Penn Relays and Drake Relays starting this week, and then you got London on Sunday. Uh, I can't imagine, you know, a more exciting week uh, in terms of track and field fan, and I'm super excited for it.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you guys for joining us here at Tracksmith this week. Look forward to doing this in the future. And there's a few nice comments in the chat section here of requests for this on a more often basis.
1: We shall see. If you purchase your Let's Run.com t-shirts, which will soon be available for sale, maybe we'll agree to do the podcast for you. Of course, you need to purchase your Tracksmith gear before that.
0: Wonderful. Thank you guys for joining us here. Stay tuned to Let's Run.com for the story here with all of the commentary from Boston. Signing off from Boston, thank you very much.